Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hey, and since you're listening to See You on the Other Side podcast, I know you like podcasts, so check out this one, Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. You have a musician, an actress, and a sci-fi writer, and they get deep yet funny about TV, films, game, music, comedy, theater, and more. Questions like, why do we binge watch? Should adults play video games? Does live music work on TV? Why are so many women into true crime? They've had guests like Lucy Lawless, Yaka Smirnoff, and other awesome luminaries. And you can check that out at prettymuchpop.com. Episode 261, Greening the Paranormal with Dr. Jack Hunter. Now, uh, Jack's been on our show a couple of times, and once again, I am joined by my lovely sister and fellow adventurer in the paranormal, Allison Jornlin. Hey, I'm so glad to have Jack on today. He's uh, one of my favorite uh, researchers into the paranormal. Right. He always has something interesting. And so if you guys have not heard uh, the past podcasts with Dr. Jack Hunter, number one, shame on you. Right. But number two, here's a quick intro. Uh, Jack is an author and anthropologist in the United Kingdom. It's currently nighttime in Wales, if that sounds spooky enough. He's also the editor and founder of the online journal Paranthropology, the journal of anthropological approaches to the paranormal. His new book is a collection of essays called Greening the Paranormal, Exploring the Ecology of Extraordinary Experience. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Hunter. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We're, well, we're happy to talk about uh, this new book, and it's just come out. And the first thing is, when people hear the word, the, you know, the phrase, greening the paranormal, mm. uh, either gonna, they're going to think that... Maybe you're going to try to solicit them for a donation to Greenpeace <laughs> or the, you know the the Sierra Club or something, or you're going to try to pass them the joint. So what exa- what exactly does Green the or, or both? <laughs> <laughs> All right, right. Well, the, the thing is that's your donation gets you the joint. But Jack, Jack, what does Green in the Paranormal mean? Yeah, well, uh, really, I I kind of borrowed the term Greening from this idea that's been going around into in the sociology of religion for a few years now. Um, which is the greening of religion. And really, I talk about this in the introduction to the book, but since sort of like 1992 with the Rio Earth Summit and maybe a little bit later on, you know, with the various different kinds of acts and things that have been announced by governments to tackle climate change, religious organizations have been kind of um, trying to convince their congregations to, you know, act positively you know for climate change and environmental activism and things like that so uh, this idea of greening the power i mean greening the greening of religion i thought was really interesting and then i thought well you know i wonder if there are any of these kind of green threads going throughout the paranormal you know i call it the paranormal milieu this you know the the group of people who engage with and think about the paranormal and uh, yeah, I started to investigate these threads and found actually that they, these environmental threads kind of run quite deeply into the paranormal um, in ways that I hadn't really expected them to. Well, you know, the funny thing I, when I think about this and just the idea of greening the paranormal and also the idea of paranormal research having a environmental or an ecological angle, 
Mm. You know, I think to Allison and I and the group of paranormal researchers and people who were into the new age movement kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, from when we grew up, it seems that um, hippies and the paranormal should go hand in hand. Like that seems to be, you know, slapping five with psychic powers at Woodstock kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and Mike, you just, um, you just, uh, re um you replicated an experiment that was once uh done um with the grateful dead so i mean that's you know you might want to mention that the you know, stanley krippner's dream experiment that involved the, the grateful D- dead so there's there's a hippie connection right there absolutely yeah. and the thing about our experiment is that we could do it without jamming on a guitar solo for 15 minutes so we could make a succinct statement inside of a song and still have uh, an experiment go on. But, nice. you know, that's the, that's the kind of thing, though. Um, you know, you think of, when you think of the New Age movement or you think of hippies and people who are open to these kind of experiences, also the altered states of LSD, mm-hmm. which is the drugs of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. You know, you think it, it should go hand in hand more, but I feel like in the in the present state of relying so much of paranormal investigation on equipment, mm-hmm. on the K two EMF meter, on you know people getting the EVPs, which are really probably uh, a bit of undigested mustard <laughs> or whatever, yeah. um, that you know we lose the fact that sometimes of that uh, a natural approach. Mm. paranormal research or even you know it's hard to say that because sometimes i think we talk nat like we are natural we create things we you know yeah humans are part of nature and, and not trying to create a dichotomy between us and the rest of the world but it seems that a lot of present paranormal research uh doesn't take as many of the uh environmental and ecological things yeah. um in there. So I was trying to say, so where did you see the start of this? Like, where did you see uh, the thread beginning uh, with these uh, ecological perspectives? Well, just coming back to that idea of, um, you know, the, why mainstream paranormal groups seem to have gone down this kind of like, you know, although paranormal investigators claim to be, you know, anti-materialists or whatever, or to be presenting evidence for uh, the existence of an immaterial world, they're still kind of many anyway, are still kind of stuck within a kind of materialist framework. So they're using things like, you know, like EMF meters and things like that, which are physical, you know, objects that emerge out of physics, and then trying to apply them onto this, um, this thing that is the paranormal that's much more kind of fluid and dynamic. I'm actually writing an article at the moment for an edited book, another edited book, a, a different one. <laughs> um, about these different strands within paranormal research going right back to the you know the 1800s and you have these two different strands one group of researchers who were interested in investigating the paranormal as a kind of uh, a, a problem of physics and taking this kind of very physicalist kind of materialist route and then another group of people who are taking a, a similarly physical physicalist perspective but down a more organicist route so I'm, looking, I'm interested at the moment in this difference between those who take a kind of mechanistic perspective, reliant on technology and even metaphors of technology to explain the paranormal. You know, like how we hear about um, mediums as, as um, spiritual telegraph machines and things like that. And then on the other hand, this idea of the paranormal as something that's more organic and um, kind of like, you know, less, uh, less mechanical, basically. 
So this is an, this whole area is something that I'm really interested in exploring at the moment. That's exactly right, though. You're talking about you're looking at traditional forms of when people were first starting to do paranormal research. Mm-hmm. And when we were first getting into it, um, you know, you had groups and they can, that continue in the same kind of way that take maybe a traditional scientific approach of trying to replicate studies. Mm-hmm. They talk about this. You talk about this in the Greening the Paranormal book. Um, the parapsychological approach yeah. of you know going in there and trying to replicate telepathic experiments like the, you know that's what we tried to do at the show at the state fair was try to make everybody think of Stonehenge and send a picture of Stonehenge <laughs> to a sleeping girl. Did it work? Um, it didn't work. It failed no. miserably, but it was it, our first try. That's <laughs> right. I mean, that's, hey, you, you're not gonna. Um, you're not going to blow minds on the first first time out, but that it, it also is just, first of all, getting an audience used to that. It's like, hey, guys, if you like this, or if you like it or not, this is going to happen again. <laughs> but I think what you're talking about a little bit uh, in the book, when they get to that point and say that we're trying to use materialist means, uh, you know, like, like you said, a traditional physics model mm-hmm. to try to understand paranormal or extraordinary experience yeah. um, when... It might be something that can't be explained in a materialist perspective. Frank, I think we have mentioned this in the podcast before, but yeah. Frank Zappa famously said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> and it's saying that, um, you know, we, we sense and we feel music in a different part of the brain than we feel literature or writing or description like that. Yeah. And so extraordinary experience might, you know, might be felt in a different part of the mind or the soul or the spirit mm-hmm. or whatever than math. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think we're talking about this, again, a difference between on the one hand, like, the, and this goes part and parcel with the more mechanistic view of the paranormal. We've got a kind of reductionism where we want to break it down to the simplest, most easy explanations. And then on the other hand, we have this more organicist kind of complexity perspective. And this is where I think ecology really comes into it, where we see multiple different processes going on at the same time simultaneously. Um, And I think that's more where the paranormal is. When you try and break it down using the kind of materialist, mechanistic, reductionist approach, you know, you kind of, you lose sight of the bigger picture. Whereas if you look at it from a more organic, holistic, um, kind of like a systems perspective, then you start to see relationships between paranormal experiences and say, you know, the particular environments in which the experience took place and the kinds of states of consciousness that the individual was experiencing at the time and all of those different kinds of, you know, all of those multiple facets of the experience and the context of the experience. And I think that's where these, you know, ghost hunting groups and things, although they may, they may get, you know, snippets of EMF, I mean, EVPs and things like that. But they're not getting the whole picture. They're not getting the whole thing. And it's because they're approaching it through a very kind of narrow, reductionist, materialist, physicalist perspective. Let's speak to that. Let's let's talk about, well, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are paranormal investigators who listen to the show. You know, what could they really do to improve uh, their outreach into the spirit world or, you know, to improve their results. I mean, if you could even say results without, you know, again, getting into that, you know, kind of scientific paradigm, (laughs) Uh, Mm. you know, I, I think that in the past, you know, in, in, uh, you know, the very beginnings of psychical research, you know, people weren't 
as device driven they you know mm. they weren't thinking about machines necessarily and how can machines record these things but they were were looking to like human experience that is unexplained and, and trying to use like humans to uh, reach out, you know, yeah. not just through mediumship, but, you know, through dreams or through mm-hmm. other altered states. Can you speak yeah. to, you know, how the average paranormal uh, investigator can become above average by maybe adding some of this stuff into their toolbox? Yeah, well, um, actually, the the last chapter in the book um, it, by Christopher Larson and um, Rick Fair and Alora Fangrad is all about what they call the, the psychic naturalist model of uh, researching the paranormal and basically what they talk about in that chapter is taking the best of the kind of reductionist approach to researching the paranormal you know taking all, all of the you know the best things from that method because there are good things about it but supplementing it with you know d- in-depth detailed field observations and um, long-range interviews with people who are at the scene and things like that so if you're really interested in ways of trying to expand the the, the scope of uh, paranormal research groups, I, I thoroughly recommend checking out that chapter. Uh, it's particularly, you know, it's really interesting. It's a good idea as well. Right, right. And, and maybe also, you know, to look back into history and historical approaches to paranormal mm-hmm. research with which – um, relied more on the human being as the instrument for communication with the spirit world, which is, you know, we're supposed to be part of nature, right? Yeah. So that would make sense that we're the best instrument for communicating um, with yeah. whatever is out there in nature. And we want to try and avoid getting into this frame of mind that suggests that we're somehow separate from the system that we're observing. So, you know, um, a paranormal investigator in a haunted house it feels as though or he's attempting to be or she um, objectively separate from the event. So they get objective data to prove that it exists with their technology. But, you know, we, we know from you know experiments in quantum physics, we could take it that far. But even like um, from anthropology, that the observer interacts with the system. So there's no there's no point in trying to separate ourselves from that system. Really, what we're trying to say with all of these different kinds of alternative approaches is that we need to under, you know, better understand our role within the paranormal experience, you know, as, as a part of the experience. Well, you know, I, I think when we approach these kind of topics and, you know, we, we think of ourselves separate from the experiences and, and the idea that everybody wants to be so scientific with everything mm. just comes from the fact that a lot of mainstream scientists uh, have a hate on for paranormal things and, and for these for these kind of topics. And because it is easy for people to make outrageous claims or to try and use, uh, people have used mystical powers and the idea of mystical powers in the past to fleece other people and yeah. to take advantage of grieving parents and sons and daughters and, and that whole thing. And so I can see why, you know, people want to take that nuts and bolts yeah. scientific approach um, to it. But it kind of that kind of takes us out of the way of um, as humans we are we're hardwired for some kind of ecstatic religious slash paranormal experience. We like seem it's, to be. It, right. It seems yeah. you know that seems that we're in there, and it doesn't seem to be necessarily that uh, it operates that the way building a bridge does, mm-hmm. or uh, you know an, an engine. Yeah. Um, or electrical current or a transistor or, a, you know, a microchip and things like that. So it, it seems to operate in, in a different kind of area. So using those things 
to try and uh, explore those topics sometimes seems that we're you know we're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Um, you know, in the book when you, they talk about sh- the shaman, and I think back on. Uh, we had the author of The Spirits from the Edge of the World, which is the most detailed exploration of the, you know, the Siberian shaman um, <laughs> out there. And this idea of animism, yeah. that, you know, everything has some energy and is alive around us somehow, has some, that everything around us has some kind of consciousness. If you, if you talk to a shaman who's raised in that tradition and you said, like, well, prove it to me, you know, they're going to look at you like, well, how do I prove to you the sky is blue? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that um, maybe we need to get a little bit into the idea of animism yeah. for our uh, for our, for our listeners because so- that seems you know people talk about it in like a comparative religion class mm-hmm. and stuff, but they may not uh, kind of understand you know what it is, or y- you write it off as well. That's what the savages believe, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, animism is a theme that kind of occurs throughout the throughout this book, throughout all the chapters um, from all the different contributors. So, it, yeah, I think it's it's right that we talk about it. And you're right, again, most of the time when we hear about animism, it's in an introductory class or something like that. You know, and we don't get we don't get to delve into it in any depth. So I think we should. Um, so the idea of animism first came from uh a guy called eb tyler who i've I've talked about a million times um but he's an interesting guy and he he coined the term animism from the greek for anima uh you know meaning the soul or spirit or is it latin perhaps and um basically he suggested that it was you know that it was this primitive belief that people in the past held um that the world was populated by souls or spirits and he came up with the idea that you know they had dreams and things like that, and and um, visions and things that they couldn't explain. Although he 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 thought that he understood them as you know just dreams, basically. So people would have dreams, and then because they were primitive, they would misinterpret those dreams as real experiences, and then posit that there were actual you know non-physical spirits. So for Tyler, animism was you know like you said, a primitive, savage way of thinking that had already been replaced by, uh, you know, a monotheistic religion and then eventually by science. Um, so there's a pro- there's you know, the early usage of the term animism in anthropology is quite problematic because it's loaded with all of these colonial assumptions about what animism is and what animists are like and, you know, generally saying that they're primitive and, you know, further down the evolutionary scale and all those kinds of things, which are obviously uh, nonsense. And it wasn't until much later in the 20th century, you know, like in the 90s and later on in the, in the uh, new millennium as well. The aughts. Yeah, the noughties. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that animism uh, kind of came back into the academic discourse about religion, those kinds of things, um, mainly through the work of people like um, an anthropologist called Nurit Bird David, who did a study of um and of Indian of of uh, animism in these kind of um, small scale societies in India, and then also through the work of Graham Harvey and and this idea he came up with of a new animism. Actually, I've skipped a little part of this story as well. There was another resurgence of animism in the nineteen sixties um, with the work of um, Irving Hallowell, uh, Alfred Irving Hallowell, an American ethnographer. 
who did his amazing work with the Ojibwa people. And um, he started to think about animism more as a kind of as an ontology rather than as a system of beliefs. And I remember last time we had a conversation, we talked a lot about what an ontology is. Right. But bas- basically, it's like um, your model of the world and how the world works according to you, you know, according to your system. And, and I remember uh, being in a you know, an introductory metaphysics class. Uh, it was metaphysics of, of native people. And um, the instructor, I, I didn't know uh, actually, you know, who he was talking about, but he, mm. he was relating Hallowell's story about the medicine man who he was questioning about the stones and saying, yeah. so all those stones have souls, you know, they're all, they're all persons. And, and then the, um, the elder that he was speaking to said, oh, no, but some of them do. And I mean, yeah. that's such a foreign idea to, I mean, modern Americans, I would think. And I I think even it's a foreign idea for some. Even to you British, Jack, (laughs) it might be a foreign idea. But it's a foreign foreign idea um, even to many when they look at, you know, the dogs and the cats or, you know, the horses or, you know, all the animals that they've known in their lives, you know, that they could be persons, you know, Mm -hmm. that they, so I, I would like to uh, talk to you more about, um, you know, animism and how it relates to personhood, because, you know, I think, you know, this new animism is great because it, it you know, casts aside those colonial notions. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we should delve into that first, like what is new animism and then talk about the personhood and how that can be extended to um, other than human intelligences. Yeah, so this new animism um, approach, um, it, it, it approaches animism from a different perspective. So Tyler and those early guys approached animism as a belief system. Um, you know, you believe in spirits, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, if you approach something as a belief system, then you can always say that that belief system is wrong. Um, so, But the new animism approaches animism from um, a relational perspective. So it sees animism as a way of understanding the world through reciprocal relationships between persons. Okay, so it's a totally different way of thinking about things um, from, you know, from especially from a mainstream kind of materialist Western, you know, mainstream perspective. You, the, the fundamental building blocks of nature in animism are Persons, you know, which could be human persons, um, plant persons, animal persons, rock persons, you know, whatever, um, or even whole, you know, rivers, whole ecosystems could be conceived as persons as well. These two fundamental building blocks of animism, persons, and then relationships between persons. And really, that's how the new animism reinterprets, you know, real animism as it's lived on the ground into academic language. (laughs) And I think uh, people in the paranormal field um, are ready for these ideas. Uh, one aside that I want to share is is that um, I think you know you're really on to something here. That because a lot of people who are into the paranormal, I have found uh, out just accidentally are vegans like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and um, so that that's been a real like eye opener because you know people don't usually 
talk about their dietary choices. It's kind of mm. a don't ask, don't tell <laughs> sort of well, situation except, sometimes. Except for except for vegans. Well, <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because, you know, <laughs> when you're out there talking, you're speaking at paranormal conferences, sometimes mm-hmm. it can be hard to get something to eat. And just you know, through asking people different questions, you know, finding out there's this network of of um, paranormal, paranormal people. Yeah, like people who are huge on the scene, like John Tenney, for example. And uh, that, you know, it's, it's just good to know that you have somebody who understands you. Yeah. And understands that you might like to have something to eat uh, well, is is just this the, great know, thing. <laughs> it is good. I think that the paranormal is like a is a really great primer for animism because you know you might not have you might not encounter the term animism and you might not come into touch with indigenous worldviews or you know any of that kind of stuff in your day to day life. But if you're interested in you know ghosts and UFOs and you know, Bigfoot and things like that, then you're already starting to think about the possibility of other forms of consciousness, you know, different kinds of minds, different layers of reality, perhaps. So, you know, people who think about these themes and, uh, you know, explore them and people who go out and have, you know, paranormal experiences in, in haunted houses or whatever, you know, at least, you know, they're starting to think in terms that are kind of beginning to turn into animism if you like right if we take if we take the paranormal worldview seriously then really all it is is uh, another form of you know it's animism just clothed in different you know different technological outfits or you know ghostly outfits or whatever right it's like semantics just different terms for the same thing yeah the more we get closer to the idea that um everything has a spirit almost or that everything around you um you know, has there is a connection to everything around you, whether it's <laughs> what we consider an inanimate object, like the guy talking about the stones, yeah. or, you know, whether it's a squirrel or something like that. Mm-hmm. That almost makes me think, you know, I'm a vegetarian too, it almost makes me think of not being a vegetarian because of that, to be closer to the natural order of things or the natural order of humanity of how we developed mm. our teeth and digestion and all those kind of things. I feel that um, you know, just just to go on that point, that not eating meat takes me further out of the natural order than brings me closer to it. That's a good point. Yeah, because I mean, it, you know, we talk about animistic societies, but you know, anim- most animistic societies are not vegetarians, and they're certainly you know not vegans. Oh, right, um, for sure. But yeah. but there is there is you know this idea of hunter gatherers that you know it's all yeah. meat, and that's not true either. No, I no, remember no. you you have to correct me, but from intro to anthropology, I remember you know being also stunned to find out that you know in hunter gatherer societies it was typical for uh, them to have about you know thirty percent meat and the you know seventy percent other, uh, yeah. you know that was that was really uh, an eye opener to me. But you know I, I'm not speaking of you know veganism to you know like yeah. uh, you know further divide people. I'm just saying that no, no, I get it. That it was really kind of a shock to me to to find out that there were so many people and I keep finding people. I'm oh that person too? That person? I think it's a I think it's a personal sensitivity people have. Well because right, you, but, you feel sensitive about the meat industry yeah. and so a lot of sensitive people are into paranormal. My stuff. point is my point was that they're they're probably doing this for a similar reason to why I'm doing it is 
I realized at some point that animals could be persons. And yeah. then I started looking at them as such. And then I was like, eh, no, I, I don't think I can eat them now um, yeah. because I, I was experiencing that they could be persons. Now, um, in your book, I mean, I think that's one of the most revolutionary ideas, this notion of personhood, the personhood of other than human beings. And I, I remember when you first wrote about it in your blog. That was one of my favorite blog posts of yours. And mm -hmm. so this extends beyond animals to plants and even beyond that to ecosystem e yeah. uh, to uh, ecosystems and um, the rivers. You, you talked about uh, rivers that legally are now recognized as persons. And I think that's yeah. really a significant development. And I hoping you'll talk more about that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting movement because really it emerges from, first of all, the fact that these all these rivers are kind of being polluted and damaged and the people who have lived and worked on those rivers, you know, for centuries and thousands of years, obviously don't want this to happen. You know, they want, they want the river to be there for future generations and all those things. So you can think of it as, you know, separate from all of the kind of paranormal and, um, you know, personhood angles as well. Um, you know, it's it's a positive thing that these rivers are being granted the same status as, as, you know, living persons because it gives them the protections. Okay, but we can start to take it a step further than that. And like we were saying with the um, Ojibwa and the guy who said, you know, that not all of the stones are necessarily conscious or, or persons, but some of them are. If we open ourselves to the possibility that, you know, it is possible to conceive of a river as a person, you know, then we're, we're starting to open our minds up a little bit further to, you know, to further explore animism. So it, it takes us that it's an interesting step because it's come out of law and legality and all of that kind of stuff, but it also opens up the, the possibility for, you know, a kind of person to person relationship with the river. It gets people thinking about rivers as persons and then starting to maybe interact with them as persons too. And I think that's, you know, a big part of the, the theme of this, of this book really. Yeah. And you, you talked about the legal precedents uh, in New Zealand of uh, this uh, river uh, that was sacred to uh, the Maori people uh, becoming uh, a person. You know, they had been fighting for for it to have these rights, you know, for yeah. 140 years. And then finally in 2017, it actually happened. Yeah, it was it was interesting. And then it happened in with the River Ganges and the Yamuna, the tributaries of the Ganges. And I think more recently, even um, glaciers, you know, up in the mountains that feed the rivers have been granted personhood status as well. And so no, I'm, with you. Have. I'm with you here, but I think we got to go back for a second. Yeah. Because first of all, the legal precedence of, you know, the idea of a something non-human as a person, mm -hmm. I think we have to get there like, okay, so let's say I'm your average listener to this podcast and I'm like, a river is a person. Yeah. All right. Well, what the hell are these people talking about? Well, you know, I, I get, we can, I get we you, can, Mike. I get you. But wait, I just have to interject this so I get it in. Uh, 
what about Citizens United and the fact that in, in the United States, corporations can now be persons? If we're That's able absolutely to, right. If we're able to fight back by, you know, making eco- ecosystems persons as well, then then we get some common ground back. We get, you know, more of a level playing field is what I'm saying. Well, cor- I mean, corporations are considered persons for newspapers so that newspapers so then newspapers can have the freedom of speech associated with the First Amendment. Mm hmm. Uh, at least in the U.S. And so if the idea of, a, okay, so let's take that. The idea of a corporation um, is a system of people working together to make money or to create something or whatever it is. And then it's a system of people working together. So then a river or a forest or, a, you know, so, some natural system of something that works together that creates a habitat for life mm-hmm. can then become a system as well. Yeah, uh, because that, that, that's that's a person in the way that a corporation is a person, and then yeah. it has some rights bestowed legally upon it as that. And so I think that's an important thing. And so, am I going in the right direction of where the New Zealand, the Kiwis did? Yeah, uh, in the in this specific thing, with they, with it, because they said here's a system of things together that creates a habitat for life, and it has some inalienable rights the same as a person does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then that that legal framework then opens up the wider discussion about, you know, what is the nature of a person? How is it that a river can be a person? Can we should we be interacting with rivers as persons? You know, I, I think it's, you know, beyond the legal thing, it opens up this, you know, bigger issue um, that relates directly to, you know, although people might not want to think of it, but it relates directly to questions about the paranormal and the nature of entities and other kinds of minds and those things. Well, that's the anthropomorphic thing, you know, so this idea that, okay, should a river be treated as a person? (laughs) The idea of a person needs to be separated from the the idea of a human, Yes, I think is is where we need to get to, is that uh, a human doesn't necessarily, you know, a human is a person, Mm -hmm. um, but a person isn't always a human, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's where we get this idea of other than human persons from. And this, again, this is this was a term that um, Hallowell came up with talking about the Ojibwa, because he found that for the Ojibwa people, they would talk about persons as, you know, your, um, you know, your relatives and the, the human beings around you. But they would also refer to their, what they called their grandfathers, which is another way of talking about, you know, spirit people or something as persons as well. And the rocks were persons. So it's just a, yeah, a different way of thinking about things. Where was, where was that question going? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, but really, the idea, the idea to get into the, the, the personhood of other things in, in that, like, so we're so anthropomorphic, uh, or anthropocentric. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it. You guys know what I mean. It's <laughs> yeah. the idea that we need Focus to- on the primacy of humanity. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, of course, that is going to be natural because we're humans and you're going to try to understand other things yeah. as humans you understand it as a human. But, um, and then I think in, in some ways, that's what contributes to the materialist perspective. Mm-hmm. Because as we go in, we're like, well, I trust the things that I can see, touch, feel, and then I can rely on. And of course, those things enable us to conquer the northern climates where we can, you know, live okay in the winter. I would say, okay, nobody lives great in the winter. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But it's, you know, it's allowed us to thrive and do things across the world and multiply and, and fulfill some kind of biological imperative, right? But 
at the same time, it's so human-centric that we neglect sometimes that these other things are so important. These systems uh, exist outside. Well, we're part of them, um, but we put ourselves outside of them and we lose touch with maybe the non-materialist things um, yeah. of it. And the so most subtle that's, things. Right. So let's get into some stories because there's plenty of stories in the, in the book that illustrate these concepts that we're talking about. You know, make it mm-hmm. make it a little bit more uh, understandable for people. Maybe to, to talk about the stories. Like I loved um, Lance Foster's uh, contribution and um, how he talked about um, he talked about a crow leader known as Plenty Koo, and mm-hmm. um, that <laughs> it was just it, it was my favorite story of the book so far. I haven't read all of it, but that was a really good one where he talked about. Um, how he had been on a raid with a uh, you know a group of uh, of other warriors. Uh, they were raiding, um, th- going on a horse raid, and as these are these are American Indians, yes. right? So this is the yes. this is yeah. U.S. American Indians, okay? Yeah. So so they're going on a, a horse raid against uh, the Sioux, and so they got to get there to this other village. So one of the things that they have to do is is cross this river. And as they're crossing the river, uh, Plenikou looks over and he notices one of his friends, you know, they're on horseback, they're, they're crossing this wild river and his friend is like stuck Mm -hmm. at, in the middle of the river. And the horse is almost like lifted up in the air uh, in a way that looks abnormal to Plenikou. And so he goes over to his friend to figure out what is going on. What, why can't he move? And then he feels his horse lifted up and his, and they're just like, what is happening? Why we can't seem to move from this point in the river. And the friend says, look, I can't get out of here. You better get out of here while you can. And, when that was said, whatever it was holding them there, let them go and let them cross. But yeah. there's a whole discussion in the book about, you know, this being some kind of water person. This was their uh, interpretation of the event because, you yeah. know, there was something that they couldn't see that was holding them up and holding them fast so that they mm-hmm. couldn't move. And I thought that was like, wow, what other persons might there be out there? And water persons yeah. are one. And I wanted to hear what you had to say about that, Jack. I thought one of the most interesting things about that story was what they did after they'd had the experience. And basically, it wasn't to, you know, go back to the place and do a scientific study and try and find out what this creature is, or, you know, get hair samples or something and send it off to the FBI to get analyzed. Not that there was an FBI then. Um, <laughs> but um, their, their um, approach to, you know, to dealing with it was basically to ignore it and, ba- and you know, to say, you know, okay, there's a water person living in that area of the river. We're going to stay away from that. We won't cross there anymore. We'll cross, you know, further upstream somewhere where the being isn't and basically leave it, you know, leave it alone. Right. And I thought that that was the most interesting thing that, that came out of that story. That was we're going to you know, leave it alone. Yeah, we're going to leave that alone. We've we've encountered something there. We're not going to go and mess with it. We'll just leave it be. And then when you start to think in, like that in terms of like preserving habitats and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, then you know, it starts to make sense. 
or, or you know, as Lance, Lance Foster puts it, you know, maybe we don't want to discover these paranormal things. Maybe yeah. it would be a problem. I mean, mm-hmm. not, you know, I, I'm, we're not trying to go to the Harry and the Hendersons idea here, but <laughs> in a way we are where um, look at the things that we have established as real. Once we do that, then we try to figure out a way to put them in our service. And yes. so that was Lance Foster's point that, you know, maybe we, we want to just leave these things be and not, and not know more about them. Otherwise they'd be subjugated under, you know, this idea of progress that we have. Yeah. So we need to have a healthy respect for the fact that they're there, but you know, that's it. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to go and investigate. We don't have to go and poke our noses in it. Right. And we also have to make sure that, you know, we don't do anything to upset the water person. You know, we don't want to be pumping chemicals into the river that are going to go down into the water person's home. And, you know, we don't want to do those kind of things. So, But at the same time, at the same time, if the water person is messing with us, like when we're conducting human business, then we yeah. do want to mess with them. Maybe, I don't know if we want to pump <laughs> chemicals at the guy, but, or at, at the, like I say, at the guy, it's probably a woman. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I is. But, but the other approach that Plenty Koo had um, that I didn't mention is, and this is when he first realized that something was other than normal, <laughs> something other than normal was going on, was when he dropped an offering into the river. So his first approach was, you know, before he even knew there was a water person there, was to give an offering to the river. But the problem was this was very fatty buffalo meat, I believe. And when he dropped it in the river, he knew scientifically that it should be floating. And Mm -hmm. instead it dropped to the bottom like a stone or like something that had been consumed maybe by the river. Pulled down. Right. Pulled down. And so that was, that was the first approach that he had. And then later on it was like, well, we know where this water person is. Let's see if we can go around it and not bother it. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first initial response is, is kind of like, um, it's an embodiment of this of the idea of animism that I was talking about before of, and of relationships. The first thing he does is, you know, engage in a dialogue with the creature, really, you know, give it an offering or it's, it's really interesting that that's the, that's, you know, that's the gut reaction to the, to the incident is to you know give it an offering. And this is the symbolic thing that I think that, I think that Dean Radin talks about a lot in real magic where he talks about how, you know, magic. Okay. So, something seems to be working there. We don't know exactly why or what or whatever. But even in you know studies, it seems that magic works. But you got to do the ritual. Mm. Right. That the the thing that we think is the silliest, like Alistair Crowley, will be like, turn towards the east yeah. and then say the words as you know you would envision <laughs> Satan's horns, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And like the, the but the ritual is the key. Right. Mm. And so even we think that okay. This piece of buffalo meat or whatever that he drops. And at first, I, I always think that's a very um, Western. We talk about the colonial, you know, the colonial thought of the Native Americans and the American Indians mm. that we say like, oh, yeah, well, the noble savage used the entire buffalo mm. and whatever, even ate its balls and the whole thing. You're just like, all right, well, that's... Um, there's more to it than that. <laughs> and, you know, let's let's try to look at it in the way of... All right, they, we made an off. You know, he makes an offering to it, 
and it's that part of the ritual that somehow connects him with the river. Mm-hmm. Somehow it, 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 it creates the relationship. I know you want something from me. I'm going to give you some buffalo meat, even though you're a freaking river, and I know you don't eat buffalo. Yeah. Right, but uh, the right. idea is that's the first contact that he has with the river. It, it isn't taking from the river. It's giving to the river. So that maybe when he and his friend are stuck, the river let him go. Didn't take them instead. Yeah. Yep. No, and that's right. But it's it's that that way of connecting with this other person, yeah. even though it's not a human, right? Uh, and even though like like a human would be like buffalo, sweet, give me some of that. Well, not me or Allison, but anybody else yeah, who me. eats buffalo would have been like, yeah, great, I'll have some of that jerky. Yeah. Um, but that idea, even though it has no use for that, mm-hmm. it's the ritual of doing that the offering. Yeah, it's a giving. That opens the relationship to whatever it is, or opens your relationship and makes you part of the system instead of outside of it. Yeah. Right. And then the other favorite story I had was about Yellow Legs, um, who was uh, Ojibwe. And um, I taught at a, a Native American school. And so we, in this area, say Ojibwe. So mm-hmm. just for the for the person listening very closely, you might notice. I have heard Ojibwe used as well. So the yeah. Ojibwe person um, called Yellow Legs, how he had a relationship with a, a boulder. And that that boulder, um, somehow, that this is like, I, I can't visualize it, but, but he would knock on the boulder with his knife and then the boulder would open like a compartment yeah. inside of it. And then um, he, he would get some medicine out that he would then distribute to the rest of the tribe. You know, he would mix it with water. And I can't even imagine what that was. But, I mean, that yeah. was really something that leapt out at me as yeah. a favorite. That's great. It's a great example because it, it goes from, you know, we talk about animism as a, a belief system or whatever, but it goes beyond that and into the realms of the paranormal, you know, where you have rocks that are magically opening up and things like that. I think it's a really cool example. Yeah. So, Jack, you know, in, in your experience as, as an editor of this phenomenal work, I mean, what what stories in it really jumped out at you? What What are your favorite stories from the book? That's a good question. I really like the um, Paul Devereaux story at the very beginning because I've got a I've got a thing for fairy stories and I'm I've quite, you know, I have my own fairy encounter. So I was really interested when I asked Paul if he would write the, the foreword for this book because I knew he'd written about, you know, earth lights and all of those kinds of things in the past, um, that he included the story of his encounter with basically like um, the green man or some kind of a, a leafy kind of fairy being in Ireland. Um, so that's how kind of how the book opens up with this, with Paul Devereaux's encounter with the green man, and then all of the questions and things that that throws up. I just thought, you know, thank you, Paul, for writing such an excellent little opener for the book. It gets right to the heart of it. When I read that, I was, you know, first of all, I thought about the, the green man, and then I thought about, um, and you know, I've only been to Ireland once. We spent like four days and went around and everything, yeah. but. I had a weird experience in Ireland as well that we've talked about in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, if it's for some reason that when we're outside of our regular habitat, I mean, Ireland's what, like 4,000 miles away for us, yeah. for Allison and I, that, you know, when we're so far away from somewhere, we're more willing to just 
be, you know, be connected mm-hmm. to the system of the land or be connected to the system of the place or be open to these kind of these kind of things. Yeah. And so when he read that and he's like, well, I was driving to Ireland and then we saw the green man just like wander <laughs> around and you're like, what? You saw the green man? And you're like, yeah, I've been to Ireland. I believe it. I can imagine it. Yeah. And, and, and uh, but Jack, you've never told us your fairy story before. Have I not? Um, <laughs> so we got to hear it right now. Yeah. It, well, it was, um, it's a psychedelic fairy story. Uh, it involves mind. We like psychedelic fairies. Yeah. It was actually the very first time that I'd ever taken um, magic mushrooms. And I was, a, you know, retrospectively, I was probably a little bit too young to be t- having mushrooms at that time. But I must have been about 15, 16. And um, I was in, I th- there are, there's a context to it as well, which I think is important to the way the experience happened. Because me and my friend were with his older brother, and he was the guy who kind of introduced us to magic mushrooms um but sure he, sounds like a bad seed yeah, no well he's, he's not really <laughs> um but he was also heavily into uh into wicker and magic um so in his in his room where we took the mushrooms you know there was a a magical circle laid out on the floor and magical paraphernalia everywhere and things which no doubt contributed to the experience sure um yeah and probably in a good way um but Basically, what happened was kind of, um, I was just, you know, in a kind of psychedelic reverie, enjoying the, the mood and looking around the room. When at the corner of my eye, I noticed that there was um, a drawer sticking out of a chest of drawers. And um, in the grain of the wood of the chest of drawers, I saw these small kind of like imp-like or, um, you know, elf-like kind of creatures maybe even you might even say goblin like they they had like long pointy noses and long pointed ears and things um but they were two-dimensional because they were in the grain of the wood and they seemed to be being led by one slightly maybe slightly larger being and i assumed that it was a woman or female for some reason and this female uh, leader of this procession of these fairy things kind of like turned its head to me you can imagine something in two dimensions kind of turning and uh, look. I'm picturing at me. like an animation. I'm, I'm picturing like this this drawer. Yeah. And I, I can I can see the wood yeah. and I can see because because pareidolia we obviously we always see faces. Yes, in, we do. You know, in, in everything, and then you're seeing the imps, but you're seeing a procession, and I'm picturing it like almost like a Walt Disney cartoon on the side of this drawer, and well, just turning around and looking at you. It was more like Have you seen the Dark Crystal? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, it was more that kind of vibe than Walt oh, Disney. Sweet. So it was more kind of organic and, you know, a bit, a little bit, a bit darker than Walt Disney style. And they, this, the leader kind of turned, it clocked me, uh, noticed that I was looking and I just went, Oh my God, I'm seeing fairies. You know, I can see fairies. And then, um, it kind of turned away. It wasn't obviously wasn't interested in, with me and the procession kind of just carried on and I must have lost interest and drifted off to look at something else. But the thing that I found so interesting about it, and you know, it's easy to say, you know, you're in a, a psychedelic state, you were on mushrooms, right? You're tripping you're balls. Tripping balls. And I was, you know, that was the most profound mushroom trip I'd ever had. It was my first one and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but there was something about these faces or these beings that stuck with me 
through all of this time. And they seem to be different from the rest of the kind of psychedelic swirling, you know, the fractal kind of organic patterns that were going on. They seem to be moving with a sort of, you know, a, an intention and a directionality. They were doing something and all of the psychedelic stuff was just doing psychedelic stuff. And they, right. they clocked me and noticed me. Um, so that was it. I mean, it didn't last for very long, but it was an interesting experience. And, you know, in terms of fairies, you know, that that idea of the fairy procession, I mean, yeah. appears again and again throughout different, you know, fairy related mythology. Yeah. I, I've got another little fairy story as well that I, I don't think I've talked about on any podcasts before. Oh, we get an exclusive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Exclusive fairy stories from super, Dr. Hunter. Super exclusive. But this is even further back before I'd taken mushrooms. I've been interested in fairies for a, a pretty long time. and. Um, one of my friends had um, a book about meditation and it was an interesting book about, I don't know where it came from or why it was in the house, but it was a book about trying to communicate with fairies through meditation. And I thought that sounds like an interesting idea. And we, we, you know, we, we listened, there was a tape with it and everything. It was like a guided meditation kind of thing. And we, we went through this process of this guided meditation and, you know, we were only kids anyway, and we didn't really take it seriously. Um, but it was, it was fun and, but nothing happened. And then there's, um, this story is actually a little bit convoluted and it ties in with magic as well. <laughs> I, well was, I like also, all of those things. Yeah, I was also interested in magic at this time and where I live in Wales behind my house, um, there was a big hill and I used to go up to this, the, up this hill and there was this little area that was like a, a small cliff like a small rock cliff face that was exposed and it had grass going like up and around it. So you could kind of walk up to the top of this cliff and there was a little tree growing on there. And I made myself a magic circle up there, you know, on the ground. I made it with salt and, um, and all those kinds of things. I used to go up there and, you know, do a bit of magic <laughs> as a child. Right. And then your, and then, then your mom's making dinner. She's like, Jack, yeah. where'd you put the salt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, I saw him. I made a magic circle. I made a magic circle up on the hill. and um, <laughs> But there was also this other cliff there. It's quite a lovely place. There used to be a lot of mining there. So non, these cliffs are probably not natural. They're, they've been mined, but nevertheless. And after we tried this meditation to, to see fairies and nothing worked, I went home and I went to bed. And in my dream, I went up to this place where we'd I used to have this magic circle and I saw in one of the cliffs there, this small doorway opening up and um, I could see inside this small cave. Um, it was all warm in there and there was like, um, you know, do you know bracken? Like red, it's kind of like a fern and we, there's a lot of it that grows around here and when it dies, it goes all orange and golden. So this, this little cave seemed to be you know, like, it was like a nest of these ferns. And there was these two creatures um, sleeping on these ferns. And again, it's like the dark crystal. These were, they kind of look like, you know, the mystics in the dark crystal. Yeah, of course. They, they were, you know, these slow moving, they were obviously hibernating or something, very much asleep. And I'm again, this happened in a dream, so it's not the kind of experience that I can tell anyone and they're going to believe as kind of evidence of the existence of fairies. But it was still an important experience for me because 
in my dream state, I'd return to this place where we'd done, you know, magic, even, you know, whatever kind of magic we thought we were doing. And I'd seen through the cliff face into this chamber with these beings in it. And that was about the extent of the dream. It was just kind of like noticing that they were there and that they were sleeping behind the surface of the rock, which is an interesting idea. And then, you know, years and years later, I've read about, um, traditional beliefs like the sand bushman for example who believe that the rock wall face where they do their you know their drawings is kind of like a gateway into the spirit world so that was my that's my ex- world exclusive <laughs> fairy yeah, that's encounter. great well and again it's like the the hills that the the fairies live in the hills mm-hmm. you know there's there's that idea as well yeah. you know that, that they have some kind of um you know a fairy hill and like inside that's where they live or like in Iceland, you know, the, the idea that this rock is a fairy church, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, or I mean, an elf church, but you know, similar, yeah. similar beliefs. Yes. The, idea, the idea that these are the spirits of the, like the forest or the spirits of the land, mm. or, you know, we think of fairies. Once again, we anthropomorphize them as like, okay, they're, they're like little people that dance and do the little people things like new. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if, you think of this idea as fairies as elementals, mm-hmm. as they're you know they're part of the land. They're the per- yes the personification of the land, but they're they're not human with human intentions. Yeah, and and this idea that you're you're seeing through the rock face into something inside um, the the consciousness that's working inside there. Yeah, uh, like that's a. That's a cool thing, whether it happened in a dream, in yeah. obviously in an altered state. It is. Uh, you know, kind of thing. And uh, you had a glimpse into something, uh, you know, and it, of course, you're like, well, it's not going to prove the existence of fairies. No. But Christ, nobody's going to prove the existence <laughs> of fairies. You know, nobody's going to, like, what was the guy's name from uh, Harry Potter, or whatever, Hobby, or whatever? No, the house elf. Dobie, Dobie. Yeah, yeah Dobie. Dobie. Nobody's going to, like, like, bring Dobie to a press conference or whatever. And everybody's going to be like, oh, man, fairy's real. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe we don't want them to, right? There's something about it, you know, being being mysterious. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, okay, we can't prove this, these things, but Jack, has there ever been a culture that's been devoid of spiritual belief or the belief in the paranormal that you know of in your studies? The Soviets. Well, you could argue. That, I'm asking Jack, you could Mike. Argue the Soviets, right. But actually, you know, when you look at the ground and the, the real people who are living underneath the Soviet regime, they hold all sorts of beliefs. And, you know, so even if even if from the top down perspective, you know, you've got a totally secular government and they ban all religion, still people have, you know, their personal beliefs and their strange experiences and their different theories about the nature of, of reality. It's just like Footloose. You can't stop the human spirit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in terms of like societies around the world, I mean, we could look at it in different ways. We could think about the paranormal. So are there societies that don't believe in the paranormal? Well, yeah, there are loads of them. And, you know, there are problems to do with the definition of the paranormal in the first place. Like we're assuming that there's a a difference between, you know, a paranormal event and a normal event or a supernatural event and a natural event. And many societies don't make any of those distinctions at all. So, you know, the question itself is is quite, when you start to think about it, it doesn't really make sense because, you know, you have all of these 
individual groups who have their own kind of worldviews and ontologies that might not fit into the category of, you know, the paranormal as we define it, or it might fit sure. into that category, but to the people who, who are living in it, they wouldn't think about it in those terms. And so well, it's complicated. Yeah, let me rephrase, let me rephrase and say, so, you know, Mike, Mike was mentioning like the Soviet regime, mm. but you know, these are all like modern uh, constructions. Yeah. Um, to my mind, you know, and, and, you know, science, the idea of science and the idea of, you know, materialism and mechanism and reductionism and all those things. I, you know, I'm talking about people who live in hunter gatherer societies, you know, and they wouldn't consider uh, the numinous to be something uh, paranormal. Yeah. They would just experience it as a part of the natural world, but they have a much broader interpretation of the natural world than we do in modern Western society. So that that's what I, you know, I, I, what I was meaning to say is other than like this modern, like uh, paradigm that we're living in now, yeah. are there other cultures who have been similar and were like, nope, there's nothing to life. And there's, there's, you know, that tree is just a thing. You know, are there other cultures that conceive of it in that way? Uh, yeah, purely materialistically. I mean, I don't... Right, purely materialistic. Yeah, That's I, what I'm going for. I'm not entirely sure, you know, there, there may well be entirely materialistic cultures out there. But I mean, you know, we can look back through, you know, all through history and there have been different philosophers and different movements who've been atheist or, you know, or totally rejecting the the supernatural or the non-physical. We can take it right back to, you know, ancient Greece and think about philosophers there, you know, debating about whether there was a God or not and all of those kinds of things. So there's always been currents within, I would say, within most cultures of, you know, of tending towards doubting the existence of those things on the one hand and then fully embracing them and accepting them the, on the other. I think any culture that you go to, you're going to find that kind of mixture. And it's very difficult to say, you know, because we talk about, you know, we talk about the West as being like a monolithic thing. Like it's the, it's the materialistic West and everyone believes the same thing, but we know from talking to people and from our own experiences and our own beliefs and all those kinds of things that that's not the case. That really, you know, when we're thinking about the way that people understand the world, it's on a, it's more or less on an individual one-to-one -one basis that we form our beliefs and you know opinions about the world, isn't it? There isn't. Yeah, there I isn't, mean, I think that's true. Yeah. So. On the other hand, it's like you know when you're. We were just talking about earlier in the beginning of the interview. Mm -hmm. You know, Mike was pointing out how foreign, you know, some of the things we were saying, yeah. like rivers as people or even animals as people yeah. would seem to most people, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, sometimes you're living in, in, um, uh, like the Western society and you, you feel like it's monolithic because mm -hmm. most that, people don't understand you. <laughs> and that's all you get exposed to. And the, the, the kind of, it's not the, you know, these lesser voices or, you know, the, the individual beliefs of an individual person that are forming like government policy. Um, it's the kind of overarching, you know, accepted worldview, isn't it? That really. Yes. I think that's what we drive in your book though. And in green, the paranormal. And I think a lot of the work of paranthropology is about eliminating the separation of the self from the whole. Yeah. And like, as we say that, of course, there is no monolithic. Like we're part of the West, yet we love weird stuff, and we know millions of people just like us mm -hmm. who are yearning 
for a spiritual experience. Yeah. And this idea that you're driving the way, okay, so yes, the institutions of religion might uh, make it so people don't want to be part of it, or uh, when you go to work, they don't want to talk about deep themes and stuff like that because it in- interferes with your ability to, to make widgets. Yeah. But when you say that the, the spiritual experience is an individual kind of thing, I think this is where we get to where we look at our own place inside the system uh, around us and the systems in our lives. And when I was making the joke about like, River as a person, shut your stupid mouth. <laughs> like it's, it's really more about finding ways to create spiritual experiences in your own life mm-hmm. and to tap into that part uh, of the greater around us yeah. and not have it necessarily have to do with the status of a church group, yeah. you know, or you're, you're worried about your liberal friends mm-hmm. looking at you like a Bible thumper. Yeah. Um, you know, what you're really interested in is finding some way to connect with the whole, with the, with the world as a person or your environment or your house as a person or your light, you know, the things around you as a person. Yeah. And that's what I think people will get uh, a sense of that if they, uh, read some of the stories in this book, or even you know, take it through some of these chapters. They're going to get a better sense of how to um, not necessarily be more spiritual. Sounds like you know, yeah. whatever. I'm going to try to you know, I'm going <laughs> yeah. well, to try to sell you whole. a hug. I'm going to try to sell you a hug, and you know, but really, it's, it's more about integrate into the into the greater thing, the the gestalt yeah. of this of everything. Um, and there is something, and it's nice to see yourself as part of a whole rather than separate from everybody else. That's it, yeah. I think that's the the takeaway message of the book, really, isn't it? It's to reevaluate our understanding of the world and our place within it, to take seriously the possibility that the world that we experience through our senses isn't just physical objects, that they might also have some kind of a you know consciousness or sentience or you know, personhood or whatever we want to call it. And that the world is really about building relationships between ourselves and other selves. And I think that's the the message of the book. And that if we want to change, you know, if we want to overcome um, the, you know, climate change issues and, and all of those kinds of things, if we want to build a better world for ourselves, then we're going to have to go to places that you know we might not expect you know we might not expect that we'd have to go to the place where we are suddenly thinking that maybe rivers are persons or trees are persons but if we really want to change our behavior which at the end of the day is what we have to do if we want to you know stop all of these terrible runaway things from happening then we have to change the way that we think and you know and you know we start to explore the paranormal and explore the new research on plant sentience and all those kinds of things then it opens up the possibility that yeah the world is much more radically alive than we've ever given it credit for what well, not not ever but certainly in the last you know 50 100 years sure and it's a connection to a place too and i think americans particularly we have an issue with this mm. as far as most i mean because um number 1 most Americans of European descent have only been here for you know so long, yeah. and a lot of people you've only maybe been in the city for fifty yeah. years, you know. And a lot of us are transplants; we don't live near where we are. Or so many people move for jobs and things like that, and you don't have that connection to a sense of place. Even though you might feel like a sense of community with other people, you forget that that community is part of a place, and the place contributes mm-hmm. to the community, and that it all comes together to make your life 
And so I think if people start feeling that they're more of a, you know, that they're connected yep. to their land, you're actually, you, you are connected to the land in a way of, of what you're walking on, of what you're looking at, of the trees that are excreting the mm -hmm. oxygen you're breathing. It makes you feel those relationships yeah. a little deeper and maybe think a little more about them. And then you can see some magic in your own life just, just on the, the, by changing your relationship to the world around you. And I think that's what Green the Paranormal, uh, it, it was about when the, the chapters, I like maybe four or five chapters so far. So I, I'm not like, you know, halfway through the book, but I would say to you guys, um, this is a worthwhile read. Uh, it's, it gets a little bit academic at times, but you're going to get some perspectives that you're not going to get anywhere else. And you're also not going to get them in a preachy, new age kind of way. Everything is really well laid out. So congratulations on the new book. <laughs> thank you very much. So uh, I want to, first of all, I want to thank you for staying up late, you know, because I don't know what time your toddler wakes up, but for me, like <laughs> 1030, if I'm like, oh man, 1030, she's going to be yeah. up at six, man. And uh, I got to get to bed. So thank you so much Sorry? for staying up late. Allison, uh, thank you for coordinating the interview and, and getting Jack on board. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Jack. We're really loving the book. I'm glad. Yeah. And, and all of your work is fantastic. So uh, I, I want you guys to go to the show notes right now, othersidepodcast.com slash 261. I want you to click on the link that goes to Green the Paranormal, and I want you to buy it because you're going to love it. It's available from Amazon. You can get it on Kindle right away if you're one of those ebook readers or if you want to have that physical relationship with a book. Not like a physical relationship, like like, you'd, like you're buying the book a, a drink and you talk for a little bit and then you finally connect. <laughs> right, and you connect at the bar. I mean, you can have that totally kind of... Totally platonic. You can have that kind of relationship with the book if you want, but then the problem is you can't read it afterwards. Um, the, the thing is, though, is that uh, if, 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 if somebody who likes the... <laughs> the act of opening the book reading it and looking at the words like with your eyes and the paper and stuff then you can also yeah. get it that way so you find that <laughs> yeah. other side thank you Mike it's a roundabout way of saying it that <laughs> 261 Dr. Jack Hunter we appreciate everything you're doing good luck to you and uh, let's do this again next time you have something cool will do thank you very much one of the coolest chapters in Dr. Hunter's book is Chapter 9, Ancient Webs, Modern Webs, Worldwide Webs. This idea that there's a network of everything connected. I mean, now we have the Internet of Things where our refrigerator is connected and our watches are connected and everything is part of the Internet and communicate with each other wirelessly, uh, whether it's light bulbs or, you know, your front door and everything. And so we are kind of creating our own universe of things that are alive, that can move, that we can interact with, even inanimate objects. And that's the idea uh, a little bit behind this particular song uh, where you can feel someone even though they're far away. You're connected to them even though you can't be with them. Golden Earring wrote about it famously in their song Radar Love. So going off of Radar Love, here's our own take on that same kind of concept. Sunspot with The Web.
listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. And we want to thank all the awesome people we met at the Michigan Paracon this weekend. Uh, Wendy and I had a great time meeting you, talking, and just having fun. It was a great time. So we met you at Michigan Paracon this weekend. Welcome to the group. Uh, We love hanging out with you. And this is the part where we talk about our Patreon community. So the See You on the Other Side Patreon community, what we do is uh, we have discussions. We talk about paranormal topics. Patreon suggests topics. We get together once a month and do a hangout where we talk about our favorite horror movies, paranormal stories that we saw. And we would love you to be a part of that. Please feel free to check that out at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. So to all our Patreons, thank you very much. Dr. Ned is at the Patreon level where he gets a shout out in every single episode. Dr. Ned, we love you and we'll see you soon, buddy. And everybody interested in becoming a patron, maybe you like the podcast, you like the songs, uh, you like the stuff that we put out and you want to help support, best way to do that is go to othersidepodcast.com slash donate. You can sign up for as little as a buck and even that really, really helps uh, us put together the songs, uh, helps pay for server costs, a mailing list and all things like that. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the other side. Turn towards the east, and then say the words.